0: Lord's Day, we come to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. There are always two extreme heresies from which we must flee when the subject of God's law is raised. First, the heresy of legalism, whereby man seeks to find favor with God on the basis of something He does or on the basis of something within Him. In other words, one's works or ability to keep the law form the cause for which God is to accept them into His sight. The second heresy which we must flee from when the subject of God's law is raised is the heresy of antinomianism, whereby man dismisses the law and commandments of God altogether as having no relationship to Him. And according to this heresy, the grace of God releases a man from all duties to follow God's revealed commandments. In both of these heresies, I would have you note that the the object of man's faith is, in some sense, man himself. In legalism, man looks to himself rather than to Christ alone as, in some sense, the cause of his acceptance before God. In antinomianism, man looks to himself rather than to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the standard according to which he pleases God. In both of these heresies, man becomes, in effect, a law unto himself. Looking to himself as either the cause of righteousness or as the standard of righteousness. The truth of the matter, as we shall see today, the truth of the matter is that Jesus Christ alone is the believer's, the believing sinner's righteousness. Righteousness. Jesus Christ and His obedience alone, dear ones, is the cause of man's salvation. And there is absolutely nothing, nothing at all, to which we can look within ourselves that qualifies us to be accepted by God. Furthermore, the truth of the matter as we shall see next Lord's Day is that the revelation of Christ in His Word alone is the believer, believing sinner's standard of righteousness. Man does not define how he will please God. Man does not define how he will glorify God. Rather, God Himself gives us that standard in His revealed commandments. Well, the main points taken from our text in Mark chapter 12, 28 through 34, are these. And as I read through the main points, we're going to be looking at two of these points this Lord's Day, and then uh, two points next Lord's Day. First of all, the question from the scribe concerning the greatest commandment in Mark twelve 28. Second, the threefold answer given by Christ in Mark 20, uh, 12, 29 through 31. Thirdly, the insight of the scribe in Mark 12, 32 through 33. And fourth, the encouragement given by Christ in Mark 12, 34. Let us look at then the very first main point the question from the scribe concerning the greatest commandment. Look with me at Mark twelve twenty-eight. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? As we begin our text it is yet the third day of Christ's Passion Week This time it is one of the scribes of the Pharisees a scribe being one of the experts of the law who approaches Christ with a particular question And according to the parallel account that we find in Matthew chapter 22 verse 34 through 36 The scribe was sent by the Pharisees in order to test the Lord. Look with me very carefully here, because this piece of information is is omitted from the Gospel of Mark. It says, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Apparently, this particular scribe had been near enough to overhear the discussion that transpired between Christ and the Sadducees concerning the resurrection in the previous passage that we had considered. And you can imagine, because the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, the future bodily resurrection, that in that point he rejoiced in the way that Christ had silenced the Sadducees who did not believe in a future bodily resurrection. But nevertheless, the Pharisees gathered together and sent this particular representative, an expert in the law, to test or to tempt the Lord, according to the account in Matthew. They were not through, apparently, seeking to entrap and to ensnare the Lord in some way. The question that he puts to the Lord is this, which is the first commandment of all? The question reads similarly in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law. In other words, which commandment is the chief commandment as to man's duty to perform? Again, there is some background as to why this question was uh, even asked in the first place. For you see, there was a dispute amongst the rabbis at that particular time in the various schools of the rabbis. And this particular question divided them into various schools, which was the great commandment, the greatest commandment, as far as man's duty to perform. The rabbis had enumerated some 613 commandments within God's law. And it sought to identify which was the greatest, and then kind of prioritize them from that point on. Some believed that the offering of sacrifices to God was the greatest. Others taught that circumcision was the greatest, and others still others taught that keeping of the Sabbath was the greatest. And you can imagine that there were probably even more schools that taught that particular commandments, this particular commandment was the great, the chief commandment. They then sought to arrange, as I said, the the duties of the law into greater and lesser laws perhaps in a similar way in which the Roman church has arranged sins into mortal sins, that is sins that are very serious according to Rome, sins according to Rome that remove one entirely from God's grace and place that person under the wrath and condemnation of God if he does not repent, if he dies in that sin. Mortal sins and then venial sins, which are, according to Rome, smaller sins, less significant sins, that do not deprive the soul of grace and do not condemn one to hell should he die in that particular sin. You see, such distinctions of sin ignore the fact that all sin is a violation of God's law. <clears throat> For all of God's moral law is upheld by the same authority and righteousness of God. All of God's commandments in his moral law have exactly the same amount of authority behind them. There, one is not less righteous than the other. Therefore, to say that one that if one violates one sin, that he incurs less wrath or condemnation from God, is is basically applying a man-made standard by way of consequence, by way of judgment to these particular violations of God's law. It is certainly true that we can aggravate our sin By certain attitudes and by certain actions and behavior on our part. But that in no way is to say that we can ever say that one sin does not deserve God's eternal condemnation, and yet another sin does deserve God's eternal condemnation. James chapter 2, verse 10. I believe makes it very clear with regard to these types of distinctions that might be used by man when it says for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point he is guilty of all Dear ones Just by way of exhortation, we must avoid all rationalization on our parts, wherein we would seek either to justify our sin as if it were okay, though it is a violation of God's law, or seek to minimize the severity of our sin by way of rationalization. Sin is, in fact, the transgression of God's law. And we must ever seek the remedy which God has provided for sin. You see, the same remedy is provided for sins whether we would think that they are more severe or less severe. Jesus says that the great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it to love our neighbor as ourself. The Lord Jesus puts a, a, a preeminence with regard to our duties to God. That's not to say that if we do violate the second table commandments, our duties to our neighbor, that we have not sinned or that we do not deserve God's wrath and condemnation, for Again, the, the authority of God, the full authority of God rests and undergirds those commandments just like the first four. But it is simply to say, dear ones, that the same remedy is needed for any violation of God's law. The forgiveness of God. And it is, in, in a sense, a great source of joy to know that that forgiveness of God, which can, can remove all guilt, and restore us into fellowship and communion with the Lord, whether it is a violation of the second table commandments, or if it is a violation of even the first table commandments. We do not have to go through more penance. We do not have to go through more repentance. We do not have to to go through any particular actions or behaviors to a greater degree when we seek God's forgiveness for having sinned against Him directly than we do when we violate the second table commandments and sin against our neighbor. For it is repentance. It is our, our sorrow. It is indeed our, our grief over this sin. Whether it's the first table or the second table that demonstrates our desire to turn from that sin and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord looks, dear ones, to our faith. It is our faith that lays hold of the promise of forgiveness and clings to Jesus Christ. We look now at the second main point, the the threefold answer given by Christ. We look at Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. And with all thy strength, this is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. <clears throat> we come now dear ones to consider the answer given by the Lord. It may seem as though the Lord and his answer that is given here gives only a twofold answer, namely the the, the first part of the answer to love God and secondly to love one's neighbor as oneself. However, I would have you note very carefully if we skip over what the Lord states in Mark chapter 12 verse 29, we will find ourselves under the covenant of works, which will issue in our just condemnation rather than under the covenant of grace, which will issue in our undeserved salvation. Verse 29 is the first part to the answer to the question. This is where we're going to spend today the rest of our time as we consider the Lord's answer. We'll look at the other two responses to the question that was posed by the scribe next Lord's Day, but we want to make sure that we clearly understand This first part of the answer, for this forms the foundation for the the next two responses which the Lord Jesus gives. The Lord's answer to the scribe's question first begins by placing our love to God and to our neighbor within the context of the covenant of grace. Look with me again at Mark chapter 12, verse 29. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord our God is is one Lord. Dear ones, it is so important that we do not overlook this point for simply to define our duties to love God and to love our neighbor apart from God's infinite grace and mercy in Christ Jesus is to sentence each of us to eternal death and condemnation in the lake of fire. Simply stated... The covenant of works declares, keep all of God's commandments perfectly and you will live. Break any of God's commandments in the least and you will be condemned. This is the covenant, you'll recall, God established with Adam in the Garden of Eden who represented all his posterity by natural generation. Adam broke that covenant and plunged all of his posterity by natural generation under the curse of that broken and cursed covenant of works. That covenant of works which brings a curse upon us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 states very clearly, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Since no man except Jesus Christ is able perfectly to keep God's commandments, all of God's commandments, No one is able to perfectly fulfill apart from Jesus Christ the covenant of works. There is therefore condemnation that rests upon all men who are represented by Adam. Thus, there is no way that either the first and great commandment to love God can be fulfilled by man nor the second commandment to love one's neighbor. The problem, you see, dear ones, is not with the law of God. The problem is not with the covenant of works. For it is absolutely righteous and holy in every way. For it simply demands absolute obedience to all of God's commandments. The problem is with man himself. The problem is with man who cannot keep God's commandments because of the corruption that he has received from Adam. Simply stated, we move from the covenant of works. Now, simply stated, the covenant of grace declares Christ has kept all of God's commandments perfectly. In Christ alone is there righteousness, forgiveness, and eternal life. Again, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, on the basis of that covenant, the covenant of grace, sinners are invited to come to Christ and to take for their righteousness, to take Him for their righteousness and to receive His obedience alone for their eternal salvation. The only remedy that God has provided for man's condemned estate under the covenant of works is man's redeemed estate under the covenant of grace. Now carefully note, dear ones, that the covenant of grace is implied in the statement of Christ that is found in Mark 12:29 which forms a sort of preface to the duties that follow we'll come back to that in just a moment but if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 20 where we find a summary of God's law in the form of the Ten Commandments, you will note in verse 2, Exodus 20, verse 2, before the Ten Commandments are articulated by God, that there is a preface to the Ten Commandments that reads accordingly I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of bondage. After that, then follows the Ten Commandments. Similarly, we have a preface to this summary in Mark chapter 12 to the two great commandments. The great commandment, the greatest, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment, which is likened to it to love our neighbor as ourself. The preface in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. These prefaces, going before our duties, explained very clearly that apart from the covenant of grace, apart from that preface, we throw ourselves and cast ourselves under a covenant of works where we will stand condemned before God. But we leave that preface in as intended to be left in. There is therefore the, the assumption that the duties follow from having been redeemed already. The duties follow from having been saved and brought under this covenant of grace where God has loved us and shown us His great mercy in Christ Jesus. In the larger catechism, Question 101, we find articulated here the preface to the Ten Commandments, and I want to read this because essentially the same thing is being said at this point in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? The preface to the Ten Commandments is contained in these words, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, wherein God manifesteth his sovereignty as being Jehovah, the eternal, immutable, and almighty God having His being in and of Himself and giving being to all His word and works. And that He is a God in covenant as with Israel of old, so with all His people, who as He brought them out of their bondage in Egypt, Egypt so He delivereth us from our spiritual thraldom. And that therefore we are bound to take Him for our God alone and to keep all His commandments. Essentially, the same thing can be said about the words of the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah, the Eternal One, the Infinite One, the One who has being in and of Himself, who depends upon no one, Jehovah, the great I Am. Jehovah is our God. He is one. He is our God. He is our God by way of covenant through Jesus Christ. And so, again, as we understand clearly the nature of this particular passage, if we overlook that, dear ones, we basically have stripped and taken out those two commandments that Jesus gives and we have placed ourselves and all people under a covenant of works. A covenant by which there is no not one of us who could possibly keep that covenant or fulfill that covenant. But in the covenant of grace, dear ones, these particular commandments are already fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ who kept this covenant for us and then brings us into it. He is our righteousness and our obedience who perfectly loved God and perfectly loved His neighbor. And so He becomes, dear ones, the one who fulfilled this covenant. We can't fulfill it. He becomes the one who fulfilled it for us in the absolute sense. That doesn't mean now we can just chuck what the Lord Jesus says and and forget about any of His commandments and then become antinomians which we'll look at next Lord's Day. No. The Lord now calls us because He has brought us into covenant with Him that His righteousness has been imputed to us, that He has fulfilled all of the, the covenant of works on our behalf. He now calls us into this covenant of grace to show and to demonstrate our love to Him through our desire to obey Him and our, our endeavor to new obedience in every way that we possibly can, to not stifle ourselves, to continue by God's grace to want to grow, to desire to grow in obeying the Lord. But recognizing this side of heaven, we will never love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength and we will never perfectly love our neighbor as ourself. It's impossible. Because the corruption of sin yet remains within us. And so if this is to be fulfilled, it cannot be fulfilled by us. It must be fulfilled by our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to realize before we move on here is not actually a condemnation, dear ones, of the moral law of God itself that is in view at all. For the moral law of God, as we said, is holy, just good, and spiritual, according to Romans chapter seven, verses twelve and fourteen. When we find various passages in the Scripture as in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, which says, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. How are we to understand that, uh, that particular passage? He's talking about the letter of the law. He's talking about the law of God. While well, he's talking about the law of God as it is a covenant of works to us. It is death to us because of our own corruption and sin and inability to keep it. He's not talking about the law in the hand of the mediator of the covenant of grace. He's talking about the law as given by the Almighty and Holy God. Who made covenant with Adam and all of his posterity. And that particular covenant does condemn all who are in Adam by natural generation unless they come under a different covenant, but mainly the covenant of grace. Similarly, there are many passages that, that those who would be antinomian want to basically discard the law of God and us have nothing at all to do with it subsequent to salvation. There are many passages that that they might, may try to appeal to in the New Testament to basically demonstrate we're finished with the law of God altogether. But understand, dear ones, that in those particular passages what it is talking about is either the ceremonial law which we are finished with, or it is the covenant of works that we are finished with if we are under the covenant of grace. It is not talking about the moral law of God in the hand of the mediator. Or in the hand of the mediator, it is our standard by which we know how to please the Lord Jesus Christ, by which we become conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, dear ones, it is indeed legalism to remove this preface to very lightly just skip over that particular preface that's found in Mark 12:29, or the preface that's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. To disregard that and simply go to the commandments is indeed legalism. It's poisonous. It promotes, dear ones, self-righteousness and pride within us, and it is even so subtle in our own lives. That it seeks to raise its head at various points in our lives. It promotes a religion that has the effect of man in various ways, man looking to himself rather than in faith looking to the Lord Jesus Christ for his help, for his righteousness, for his strength, for his confidence. I think that I've explained the, the essence of the covenant of works and the essence of the covenant of grace and really what's needed to understand this passage at this point. As I said, next Lord's Day we're going to move on to the two commandments that we find there. But I want to at this point, with the remaining time that I have available, Today, I don't want to proceed any further into the text. Rather, I want to apply that text in various ways to our lives. Various ways, teachings, doctrines, practices that we may uh, at one time or maybe even now find ourselves falling into, which are subtle forms some more explicit and others more subtle forms of legalism, and that doesn't mean that because we fall into merely because we fall into that sin any more than another sin that we have we have separated ourselves from the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is certainly something that if we belong to Christ that if we are indeed under the covenant of grace, why would we want to place ourselves back under the covenant of works in any sense? In any sense at all, we should want to rather flee the covenant of works and enjoy to its fullest the covenant of grace. And so I've I've articulated here just, I think, four areas that I'd like to elaborate on wherein legalism is manifested. The first being this. Legalism is manifested when we deny that God unconditionally elected specific undeserving sinners from all eternity to be saved through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, Armenianism rather affirms a conditional election. Namely, that God elected from eternity those in whom He saw faith or repentance or some other work performed by man. That is, God's election according to the Armenian, is conditioned upon what God foresaw in man rather than upon His own free grace. Rather than upon His own sovereign choice. How, you might ask, does a conditional election manifest legalism? Well, grace, according to the Word of God, is salvation apart from man's works. Whereas legalism is salvation dependent upon man's works. Now, with that particular definition in mind, when we come to, say, Romans chapter 9, in verses 10 through 13, listen how carefully God wants to make clear through the Apostle Paul that his sovereign choice rids man of any pride, of any merit, of any works at all. And not only this, Paul says, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Very clearly from uh, this text, God says that He sovereignly chose Jacob over Esau That it was not dependent upon anything within themselves. Not dependent upon any of their works. Why? Because he wanted it to solely depend upon him that calleth. Him that elects. Him that chooses. Likewise, we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Notice in these two verses that it says that God chose us in Christ, the time is before the foundation of the world in eternity, That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Not because we were viewed as being holy and without blame before Him in love. But that we should become that. He did not choose us because He saw faith in us. He did not choose us because He saw us as justified, as redeemed, He chose us that we might be justified, that we might be sanctified, that we might be glorified. Verse 5 says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. He didn't predestinate us because He saw us as His children, He predestinated us that we might become His children. He predestinated us unto the adoption of children. It wasn't according to our faith, according to our will, but it says according to the good pleasure of His will. God's will. But you see, dear ones, to make God the author of an election that is based upon man's work rather than upon God's free grace and sovereignty is indeed legalism because there is room for boasting on man's part if God chose us because He saw we would first choose Him. However, there is no room at all for boasting If God chose His people only because He decided to set His love upon certain specific sinners who were dead in their trespasses and sins. God, in this case, alone is to be exalted and all the pride of man is to be abased. A more subtle, a second example, a more subtle form of legalism that is embraced by many professing Christians today is that of resting in their repentance or in some other inward qualification as in some way being in part the cause of their justification before God. Now, repentance according to the Scripture and our confessional standards, is a godly sorrow for sin, a hatred for sin, and a purposing and endeavoring to walk in all of the commandments of God. The question here simply is, Upon what basis does God pardon sin and receive the sinner as righteous in His sight? It is not on the basis of our repentance. For that would again be a form of legalism. For we would be looking to ourselves and in effect that becoming the basis upon which we would offer to God why we should be justified and declared the basis the ground the cause of our justification is the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone and how is that righteousness of Christ rece- or, yeah the righteousness of Christ received the scripture says by faith alone Romans chapter 4 Verses two and four through four. It says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. And then verse five. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You see very clearly, it is not repentance that that clings to the righteousness of Christ. It is faith which clings to the righteousness of God. God surely convicts the sinner of falling short of obedience to God's holy law and invites the sinner through the gospel to come to Christ alone to obtain the righteousness, forgiveness, and life which he so desperately needs. But the means appointed by God to receive Christ's righteousness is not by looking inwardly to our own repentance, to our own qualifications in any sense. But the means divinely appointed by God is to look outside of ourselves to an alien or foreign righteousness, something alien or foreign to ourselves, namely the righteousness of Christ alone and to embrace that. It's been said that faith is like our eye. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been able to turn my eye around and look inside of myself. In fact, I've never been able to see my eye without looking to, into a mirror. That's the nature of faith. Faith does not look inside of itself. Faith does not even look to faith itself. Faith is like an eye. It simply apprehends, trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation. Genuine repentance, dear ones, does then indeed follow those who have apprehended the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Which means that repentance must follow saving faith, for it is saving faith that apprehends the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Repentance, evangelical repentance, then follows faith. It does not precede faith. Therefore, we ought not to, in any sense, rest in our repentance or any other qualification as the cause of our justification. Certainly, the Lord does produce fruit within our life, in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, to which we can look not for the cause of our justification. But we can rejoice in what God is accomplishing and take great delight in the fact that God is bearing fruit through these various graces that He has given to us and as a testimony that we belong to the Lord. But it is a testimony that we belong to the Lord. It is not the cause. We are not to rest in that. We are to rest in Christ and in his righteousness alone. And so that becomes, if we're not careful, another one of those subtle means of falling back into the covenant of works rather than delighting in, rejoicing in the covenant of grace. A third way in which legalism may manifest itself It may raise its ugly head in those who are indeed growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ when their confidence, when their help, when their strength, when their joy, when their peace is turned from the one true living God as their object and source to another object and source. Whatever that may be. For dear ones, when we rest in our own graces, in our own gifts as sufficient to carry us through life, or when we rest in our confidence in the economy or in our job, the security of our job to supply all of our needs, Or when we embrace our family or friends or possessions as the source of our joy in this life. Or when doctors or medicine become the source of our strength or healing in this life. Or when we trust the ordinances of God or the commandments of God to be the source of our spiritual growth in Jesus Christ or when we look to the creeds of man as the source of our faith and rest in those, any of those, even though all of those may be profitably used in our lives to promote good and welfare as means, but not as the source and the object of our faith, we do fall, dear ones, again into a subtle kind of legalism. We do fall again in a sense into that direction of the covenant of works, rather than enjoying our status, our place in the covenant of grace, in looking only to God as our source, as our help and strength, as our righteousness, as our salvation is our joy and peace. Perhaps you have thought or said things similar to this. If only I had this or that, I would be happy or I would be content or I would have peace or I would have joy. And you're not referring to more of God's grace, you're referring to some possession or some creation in this world. If only I had this. Well, dear ones, do you see how that is a form of legalism because God himself is no longer the source of your joy, your peace, your happiness, but something upon earth now becomes the source of that joy, that peace, and that happiness. Or perhaps, you have thought or uttered words like this, if only this were not to be true, I would not worry or be afraid. If only this were not true of me or true of my situation or circumstances, I would have nothing to worry about or fear. But because it is true, I do worry and I do fear. Again. Here ones, in that case, a, a subtle form of legalism because God, who is our strength and our confidence, our help, is no longer the source and the object of our faith. If we have succumbed to actually saying, remove this circumstance and then I won't be fearful anymore. I won't be afraid. I won't worry anymore. Let us see and understand, beloved, that legalism is trusting in anything other than the living God. And we all, to varying degrees, as I said earlier, fall into legalism for who among us would claim that he perfectly trusts the Lord God. If it were not for the covenant of grace, we would all be doomed and condemned. We all must utter, therefore, these words in our life continually, I believe, help thou my unbelief. This form of legalism must be overcome by growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the knowledge of God Communing and enjoying God. Becoming so familiar with the Lord our God that it becomes like a, uh, like second nature that we would simply turn to God whenever there is a need. That He would be our first thought, not our second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth thought. Somewhere along the line, we generally realize what we're doing and God is gracious to us to grant to us that conviction and to set us back straight as to where we've gone astray. But dear ones, to the degree that we can more quickly, because we know the Lord so well and have become so familiar with Him, acquainted with Him, love Him, enjoy Him so much, know of His power, of His goodness, of His faithfulness, to His Word, to keep His promises and to care for us That we're in his arms. And though it may feel like we are going to hit the ground, he will catch us. He always does. He knows what's best for us. The last subtle form of legalism that I would suggest to you is this. You can go on, and I'm sure there's, you would be able to think of many others, but I, I obviously had to limit it to a certain num, uh, number today. But one of the reasons we find ourselves at times unable to overcome sin in our lives so often is because we become more consumed with the sin in our lives than we are consumed with Jesus Christ who can overcome the sin in our lives we become more consumed with the problem than with the solution. And it's not to say that we should not sense the conviction of God's Spirit in our life. It's not to say that we should not sorrow and grieve over our sin, that we should not hate sin. It's not to say that we should not endeavor new obedience. But dear ones, in your life and in mine, When we become so preoccupied with sin that we have turned our eyes inwardly to such a degree, we no longer see the sufficiency of God to overcome all of the sin, the besetting sins in our life. We become fixated upon that particular problem. And it rules and controls everything that we do. This is a problem that we can all fall into if we're not careful. This is a form of legalism. Dear ones, it is not either a mark of a holy life nor the mark of a victorious life to be preoccupied with one's sins all of the time or to be overly introspective. There is such a thing as a sinful introspection that will lead us into a a state of hopelessness, a state of helplessness, a state of despair. It is a form of legalism, dear ones, to be preoccupied with our sin to such a degree, we can't see the remedy any longer. To such a degree, we do not see Christ in all of His glory. We do not see all of the provisions that He has made to overcome sin in our life. We do not see and enjoy the forgiveness of God. We do not see and enjoy the work of the Spirit in mortifying sin in our lives. We do not understand the many promises that God has made to us and which He has safely entrusted into our own spiritual bank account as His children. It is our inheritance, but we're not drawing on it. We act more like paupers than like kings and princes because we are so consumed with the problem that we do not see the answer, the solution and the remedy in Jesus Christ. You know, one who has sustained a broken arm will not find relief nor proper use of that arm by only moaning and wailing about his broken arm, focusing all all of his attention upon his broken arm, but never looking to the solution, never going to the doctor to have his arm set and immobilized, bandaged if necessary, so that it will, the bone will grow back together and be mended. And likewise, dear ones, we must learn to look to the divine physician as the only one who can cure us of our sin through Jesus Christ. We must not ignore the sin in our lives. We must, we must be ever so conscious when we fall into sin, that we do not continue to fall deeper and deeper into sin by our unwillingness to, to, to deal with that sin in an appropriate manner. But we must learn, dear ones, at the same time to look away from the sin and to look to Christ. To look away from the sin and to think on that which is good that which is honorable, and that which is wholesome. In other words, turning our thoughts from the sin which would would ensnare us and entrap us and to focus our thinking upon that which is good, that which is wholesome, that which edifies and builds up and encourages That which we have to be thankful for and to rejoice in. We must learn, dear ones, when we find ourselves overly preoccupied with sin, as well, not to remain in some kind of idle state, but to get busy. To find something with our hands and our feet to do. To occupy our minds. And not to just roll over as if we were dead. We must learn, dear ones, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, and as I said, to enjoy all of the benefits which He has purchased for us through His death and resurrection. And in so doing, we will gradually loosen the grip of legalism in our lives and gradually strengthen the grip of faith in Jesus Christ, who is our Deliverer. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, our sin is not only that we do not grieve as we ought to grieve over our sin, but also, our sin is that we do not enjoy thee as we ought to enjoy thee. For, Father, indeed, the end of repentance and grief and sorrow is not to stay there and to remain there, but, O oh Lord our God, it is a means to that end, which is to enjoy thee, to commune with thee. Somehow, Father, our our understanding of what is truly spiritual gets turned around and, and we almost take comfort in the fact at times that we are overly preoccupied with our sins. We almost take comfort as, as, as if that's a sign of our spirituality when in fact, oh God, it may be a sinful preoccupation and not looking to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, and enjoying all the many blessings which he has purchased for us. We ask, our Father, that thou would deliver us from all forms of legalism, and that, Lord God, thou would give to us the grace to live in sight of and in view of the covenant of grace, We pray our Lord and our God that Thou would make these truths clear to us and that, Father, we would go forth this day more aware of the the satanic devices and schemes of of the evil one and more determined, O Lord, by Thy grace to avoid them so as to live a life that brings glory to Thee and builds up one another
1: we ask these things in the name of Christ Amen. this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's revival books you are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available free and for sale in audio video and printed formats T-6-L-3-T-5 You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions,